From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's April 27th, 2016. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today we're sharing a recent conversation with legendary actor Susan Sarandon. With memorable performances in films like Bull Durham, Thelma and Louise, Lorenzo's Oil, and her Oscar-winning performance in Dead Man Walking, Sarandon has been a staple of great American cinema for decades. At a recent free talk sponsored by HBO, Sarandon discussed her career and her latest film, The Meddler. Directed by Lorraine Scafaria, the film stars Sarandon as Marnie, a widow with eternal optimism and generosity, who moves to L.A. to be near her daughter Lori, played by Rose Byrne. When Lori shuts her out, Marnie must find other ways to channel her boundless exuberance. In a conversation moderated by Film Society Executive Director Leslie Kleinberg, Sarandon talked about The Meddler as well as her relationship to New York, the independent film scene, and her memories of David Bowie. Let's go now to their conversation. Hi there, this is Allison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theater is turning 25 this year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org WRT25. I think that means you liked it. I think that means I like you. No. <laughs> you're, these, are, these are your peeps right here. They definitely are my yeah. peeps. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I do have lots of questions I'd love to ask you about your career and your... your, your uh, do they get to ask They anything? get to ask questions too, but I thought we are here to talk about your new film, first and foremost, and you all saw the trailer just now. Um, I wonder if you could just start by telling us a little bit about what drew you to this particular film. What you have choices, I'm assuming, and you decided this was a film you wanted to. Well, be a part I do of. have a lot of choices, but I wasn't dying. I wasn't help someone die. I wasn't didn't have Alzheimer's. It was like the choices that you get at a certain point. You know, you don't get too many love stories, and uh, so and I found it just. Usually when I pick up a script within the first six pages, I know exactly what's going to happen. And this one twisted and turned, and then I met Laureen, and Laureen was so um, passionate about making this because, of course, it's a very personal film. And, and, uh, and then she sent me, so I met with her, I really liked her, and then um, I got this little five-minute sizzle reel that was her actual mother doing exactly the opening of the film, the first five minutes of the film, all the dialogue shot by shot. And she was just so funny and eccentric and authentic and, you know, I just was sold completely. And then we had to find the money. It's a, it was done in 23 days for not even three and a half million dollars. So um, uh, getting Rose Byrne, who is a friend of mine in, and J.K. Simmons were gifts. I was really afraid. He had committed to it, and then he won the Academy Award, and I, was, I called up Lorene, I said, so is he still gonna do it? I don't know, is he still? <laughs> and she said, yeah, he's still in, and that helped get the rest of the money. And, um, and then, uh, it, you know, it, it just, I think everybody, you don't have to lose a spouse to understand what it's like to be put in a situation where you have to start over. Uh, and she's, <laughs> I wore all of her clothes. Well, you didn't see the whole movie, but wait till you see the wardrobe. Everything is some kind of leopard or some kind of animal print or butterflies or something. But she's so, uh, you know, New York in LA you just see the whole time what a misfit she is and but she has such a great spirit and such a generosity and she was so funny 
And uh, so I just, I was, I just thought this is great, you know, and I was um, pleased that I had no problem keeping up the pace uh, that it involved because we were working <laughs> really fast and furiously. And you're in every scene, it seems. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, so yeah. It's a lot of work for you. Uh -huh. Um, you once said in an interview that um, you don't want to make a movie about a mom who makes no mistakes. That that doesn't that seem that you wanted you were drawn more to that flawed character. I wonder if you can talk about that in the context of this story and this mom. Uh, well, I don't. Yeah, I think everybody, um, even when you have a sister Helen who seems so heroic, that you know, it's just not interesting playing somebody who's. Perfect. I love women. I love all the different kind of moms that I've played. All the, you know, and they're all flawed. Every who isn't flawed, um, and all so different. Um, and I and I think what's interesting is to find people that seem ordinary, and then when you really get to know them, you know, they do extraordinary things. And in this woman's life, you know, just a tiny bit of a change is really a lot. Um, and I love doing love stories. Every every film that I've ever done has, to me, always been some kind of a love story because I just find it's the most courageous thing you can possibly do is to connect with another person, make yourself vulnerable to them, to try in some way to be uh, intimate. I don't even mean sexually, but just vulnerable to another human being. And so she just is so traumatized. Uh, when she spent her entire life nurturing her husband and being there for her husband and really loves her husband, really loves doing for her husband. And then that's taken away and she has to try to figure out where to put all this nurturing energy um, and anybody that comes within her path kind of gets it, you know, if, they, if they're needy, she just does it. And I, I don't mind her being inappropriate that way. I mean, I wish everybody was inappropriate and an overabundance of kindness and but it can be quite grating when you're her kid yeah. and uh, especially with cell phones which make you accessible all the time well it's a great device in the film actually the way that uh, the cell phones are used which i won't give away too much but it was i thought it was actually terrific yeah i hope you see it i hope you're not satisfied with just this little I hope you go see it. <laughs> we'll show you another clip in a second. And I just want to re remind people that the film is actually opening Friday uh, in New York. So please, uh, please try to check it out. Um, vote on Tuesday. Yeah, vote tomorrow, number Everybody one. Everybody vote tomorrow and then go to see the movie on Friday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, when, you, when you see a role like this also, that's a woman who's an older woman. And um, do you find that there are many uh, opportunities that you have to play a fully realized older woman who's sexual and no 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 not at all no I don't think so I don't uh, I I don't I don't know if they're going to somebody else I don't know if you've seen probably a lot of films I don't I don't think people think to to write that it was it was that's why it was such a, a gift you know and and JK is adorable and and just so different than you've seen him in, in anything. And so it was, uh, when I, I mean, I, when you do something, you try not to judge, you know, you don't want to be judging your character. You don't want to be trying to uh, also be sympathetic. You just kind of try to make it as, we, we were trying to ground it as realistically as possible and not comment on the comedy and, and uh, but then when I saw it, the first time I had to loop some lines, I thought, oh my God, she's crazy. She's like so annoying and weird and, and, uh, and he's so patient and, uh, but I guess, you know, you kind of understand, I'm told that she does it from the goodness of her heart and so people forgive that annoying part of it. But you are a kind of fish out of water, aren't you, in the film? You're, you, have you ever lived in Los Angeles? Not willingly. Um, <laughs> I've always gone with a job. Uh, I'll be there. I'm going to do something for many months in the fall. So that'll be the first time in a long time that I've been there for a while. Um, and I've lived in different places. I've never quite figured out how everything connects, but I... 
I, I, I went either when I had to work or I had the kids when Tim was working. And, um, but it's not, I, I have a more of a sense of humor about it now. I was kind of appalled in the beginning, but um, because it just seemed so corporate and that was many, many years ago. And of course it's only gotten more in the business, but being such a company town, I, 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 even when I'm working, I feel like my career is over because you just everyone's you become so self-aware because everybody's watching everything and you have to be so social and the serendipity that you have in New York just doesn't exist there if you run into somebody you know you've hit them with your car you know it's just very little time that you're on your feet doing anything and I'm so used to walking and I, I was born in New York and I raised my kids in New York and I've been here forever ever ever so it's an adjustment for me I have one son that's out there now I have another son that's in Clinton Hill and my daughter just uh, moved to Westchester so um, I've got two on this coast but he's a filmmaker and he he likes it out there so I, I go out but I, I've never I wouldn't count it as living there just wor mostly working how do you feel or do you feel that that has had an effect on your career not being a New York based actor well I mean uh, I, that's not the way you're supposed to do it, uh, for sure. And, um, but I think it helped me stay grounded and it helped, you know, this is, um, if somebody, if you're in a job where everybody's going to be paying attention to everything you do and, um, it's, it's nice to be in a town where that's not the only game in town. And that's, you know, New Yorkers are so cool. They're just like, Hey, how you doing there? And all I go, ah! And if I were in L.A., I'd be behind a gate, and I would be, my kids would, you know, be with all other horrible Hollywood kids, and, um, <laughs> you know, the only languages they would hear that would be different would be people that work for you, and it's just, I just didn't feel that I was vigilant enough to give them as privileged kids, I want them to know their privilege and not think that's ordinary, and certainly when you're um, here, and you see all kinds of families and all kinds of languages and all, you know, especially downtown, which is where they were raised. Um, it's, I don't know. I just felt it was the best for them. They become, they have a great sense of humor. New York kids have the best sense of humor. And they're out on their own at 10 or, you know, you don't, you're not driving them everywhere so they, they can, for better or worse, they have fewer places to have sex uh, <laughs> because they don't have cars. But... Um, you know, they they definitely can roll with just about anything, especially downtown kids. And they went, two of my kids went to St. Anne's for high school, and but everybody was downtown. And um, I, I don't know, I just, uh, New York just suits me, and I love coming back to New York. Um, I mean, the spirit of what's going on now, you know, politically is just the best, and you, you just, everyone being engaged and kind of having these conversations is just what I love about the city and, and uh, I, I don't think, I mean, my, I feel like the biggest gift I've given my kids has been to grow up in New York because they're adaptable, they're flexible, their idea of what the world is is so huge. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, and they, you know, where else can you learn Japanese in school, I mean, in high school, you know, it's, it's crazy. So I've always, been, I've always been a New Yorker, but I've gone there to work, and as I said, I have a sense of humor about it now that I didn't have when I was much younger. Um, because I would walk everywhere. When I, I think the first time I went to LA, I was working on front page, and I was staying at the Chateau Marmont before it was really cool and everyone was photographing everything that was going on there. And uh, I would walk around, you know, and constantly be stopped because they thought I was a hooker. And I don't even think... <laughs> Because nobody walked in Hollywood, you know, They're, they really don't walk. And uh, so, because I wasn't even dressed provocatively or anything, it was just like, what are you doing walking? And, um, you know, and, I, and I've never really acclimated to being in a car that much. My daughter t tells me that, you know, she likes the time in the car. And every time I'm in the car, of course, it takes 40 minutes or more to get everywhere. And every time they say, oh, it's never like this. Mom, really, it's never like this. I'm like, yeah, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning maybe, but really it's always like this. Um, and that drives me crazy. I don't like, you know, spending that much time in traffic. Having lived out there myself for a short time, I can agree with all those things. I think the thing as a New Yorker is the interaction is what you miss. 
Right, that's the spice of life here is that we all... Well, again, having to plan everything, every dinner. I mean, if I, I always have a hard time on Sundays. For some reason, Sundays, I just get very melancholy. I go out, everyone looks like they're in love. I hate them for that. I just, everyone seems like they're having such a good time. But you can walk around and find a gallery you didn't know existed. You can walk around and see the movie that's playing or wander into a coffee shop. You know, I mean, they're just, you're bombarded once you're on foot. And then you, if you go to Brooklyn, you know, even more stuff that you didn't like, like Clinton Hill is a whole other neighborhood I didn't know that much about that I really love. And, you know, now oh, Highline is one of my favorite, favorite things ever and all the galleries that have opened there. So you can you can go out and also... Um, you know, when I've gone through really challenging times and I can't sleep or whatever, I would just speed walk down the West Side Highway all the way, down, you know, during the path that's on the West Side at 12 o'clock at night. In the summer. There's people all around, boom boxes are going, you know, I feel totally safe. Uh, and just to, to be able to get out and, and walk. So um, the city really suits me and I, and I love, maybe it suits me because I also leave and I don't feel trapped, and I, you know, can get some green and, and, and a change of, and come back, but I'm always happy when I come back. I'm always so proud to be a New Yorker. Well, we're happy to have you, of course. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask a, a question about what the industry was like when you started. Um, the first, some of your first films are independent films. Atlantic City is a really an independent film. Even Rocky Horror is an independent film. But what was this industry like for a young woman starting out in the early 70s? Um, well, I, 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 I mean, it, I, I don't think, maybe it was just me, but it didn't encourage you to be as self-aware in a bad sense. I mean, the packaging wasn't as significant of who you were, um, and like I said, I, I, you know, well, I kind of fell into the business. I, it wasn't that I ever wanted to be an actor. I didn't study acting. Um, I just, with Joe, I just kind of fell into it, and I thought, well, this is funny, and then I got another job, and I was like, oh, that's really funny. I can pay off my school debt, and, and, um, and I just, I, I don't think you could get away with it that way anymore. I mean, I think it's such an industry. I think that, uh, um, you used to have studio heads who were personalities who liked making film. They weren't, they didn't have a banker's head. They, you know, the corporate takeover of everything has changed everything. But definitely in the business, you have bankers making decisions. They cast people according to how many followers they have, all of this kind of stuff that's going on now. Uh, I... I it, it 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 didn't it seems it it seemed more impersonal in, in LA than it had when I was in New York, but nothing compared to the way it is now. And um, but then on the other hand, there's a lot of different ways to make film. Uh, there's even more distribution now than there was in the middle period. But um, you definitely were told. I mean, I I knew that my career would be over at 40. You definitely didn't play a mother all of these pieces of advice. There was as much sexual harassment, certainly, or more, but nobody knew to file a lawsuit about it. I mean, that just wasn't happening, but uh, it was kind of part of what you would run into, for sure. Um, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, again, I, I had kind of an odd career because I was almost reluctant, and, uh, but things, it was definitely, the agencies that were doing everything didn't feel like they were probably going to be part of the UN tomorrow, you know. I mean, now they're so massive and they handle so much stuff and they handle sports and video games and they're corporations in themselves, the agencies that handle people. And um, I don't know, there's so much TV now. There's a lot more TV. I guess there's more chance that way to do things. I never was really interested. When I first did Front Page, for instance, um, when I got the job, they asked me to sign a contract that um, guaranteed that I, I, I had to do four more films without having any script approval. Mm. And um, I said I, I, I just couldn't do that. And I lost the job. And then I called Billy Wilder and I explained to him that the reason that I wasn't doing it was not because of money or anything, but was because of this. And then a few weeks later, um, 
he I got the job again. But that was something that was very typical, you know, asking you to to be indentured to a studio for a while without any say. So, which was the continuation of all those gals. You know, Betty Davis tried to fight against that. All of them did, but um, it, it, there was still the remnants of that in the beginning in the 70s. Uh, but I did the first few of my films just from New York, uh, somehow, I don't know. As long as we're talking about that, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about Burt Lancaster, oh. if you don't mind, since we're at the Film Society. No, I, I love Burt. Um, well, Atlantic City was funny because it was there was a script that existed that was a Canadian that was Canadian money and a Canadian script that I had I knew John Guare and I introduced Louis to him and he decided to place it in Atlantic City and he rewrote quite a bit of it. Uh, and and when they tried to prove that it it wasn't all his, he won the suit. So it definitely was his creation, and it was the first time that Burt Lancaster had appeared older. You know, he had to whiten his hair even more than it was, and Louis was always trying to mess him up and make him, and uh, but so sweet and really really took the I don't he didn't have the I was the director's girlfriend as long as as much as he knew, and he was. Uh, always in a mode of kind of trying to teach you something. You know, that was his kind of 50s version of... And when it came time for uh, the scene where he talks to me and describes looking at me voyeuristically and I come and kneel down and kind of offer myself, he was very disturbed by the idea that he he said, you know, my fans really expect me to take her and throw her down, you know, and do that, not like this other dynamic. And it was in the script described as she comes toward him like a deer in the headlights as he's talking. And so Louis wasn't comfortable all the time talking to actors. He would manipulate them in other ways, like have the camera going before he said it was going or have it continue after. He said cut, and uh, but he sent me to explain it to Bert and how it was going to be blocked differently. And to his credit, he did it the way it was written, despite the fact that it wasn't comfortable for him. And years later, um, I had his telephone number, and years later, after he did the Scottish director's film, what was that one called? With Peter Riegert, what was it? Local Hero, thank you. He did Local Hero, and I saw it, and I thought he was so good in it, and I called him up, and I said, oh, I just saw Local Hero, and you're so great, and I just wanted to call and tell you that, and blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, thank you very much, and I hung up, and then he called me back, and he said, you know, I didn't even ask you how you are. He said, nobody ever tells me anymore that I'm great. You know, he said, I guess they just take that for granted. And he said, I was just so thrown by your phone call. I just wanted to call back and find out how you were. But yeah, I was thinking, I guess when you're an icon like that, you know, people do just treat you like a mountain or something that's just there perfectly. And they don't necessarily tell you that you really did a great job. Good job, Bert. <laughs> well, he's from a whole other era. I think, but he was the yeah. first one that had a production company, the first actor that had a production company, and he hired, you know, his friends, and he, he started with a, that pirate movie, and, and also when you look at his career, it's astounding how the different Birdman of Alcatraz or Comeback Little Sheba, you know, for this strapping, gorgeous guy, he took some real chances, and uh, I don't think he got enough credit for that, because he really did try some different stuff he didn't have to. Um, I'm curious, as your career has gone on, what have been a moment when you had a confrontation either in what you had to do or what you didn't want to do, you know, where you had to go through it? Yeah, there there have been some moments. Um, um, let me see, who can I talk about that's not going to be upset? Well, it was pretty funny on The Tempest. I don't know if you saw The Tempest, but um, Paul Mazursky and it was um, Jenna Rollins and John Cassavetes, and I, you know, it's loosely based on The Tempest, and I play Ariel, and so John Cassavetes' mistress. 
Um, and, uh, you know, and she travels all over the Greek islands and everything. So I wanted to be kind of, you know, with boots on and he wanted me and Paul wanted me in high heels. And then there was a whole thing about that. I didn't really love John. This was during the rehearsal period. Molly Ringwald was 11. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> and I didn't really love him. And it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And I finally, I cut off all my hair trying to get fired. <laughs> and, um, that didn't work. Paul just took a minute and then didn't fire me. And then the rehearsals were still getting worse and worse and worse because for me it was really important that I cared about him. So I, I went to John, was staying at the Wyndham Hotel with Jenna, and I said, you know, I just came by to tell you that I really can't stay in this any longer. We're just on, you know, I can't go to Greece and be there and do this movie, you know, because I, I think the character really loves you and that's a very basic thing for me. And he says that's not true and I don't, and I have to sing Hava Nagila and he wants me in high heels. And, you know, I just, I just don't think this is, I just don't want to do this. And he said, if you leave me, I will break your legs which was not what I expected to hear. <laughs> and I was like, oh, he said, look, seriously, you have to come. You can't not come. You know, you have to come. We don't have to listen to him. He said, well, you can love me. Don't listen to him. He's just the director. Don't listen to him. You know, you can just, you'll love me. We'll have a great time. Just come on. I was, okay, I guess I'll do that. So then we did it. And we were all stuck on the Mani Peninsula for a number of months in the fall in Greece, and um, it was pretty funny. Uh, and I just, he, I learned a lot from that. And, you know, Raul Julia was very playful, and uh, Molly, uh, Molly Ringwald and I were working up all these acts, which one of them ended up in the movie. And uh, Paul still was kind of harassing me, but it was, and we got into a big, conf oh, that was the other thing. This was so stupid. I don't know what was wrong with me, but um, all I was wearing was a pair of white underpants and a t-shirt. I don't know how many movies I did without a bra, but for some reason that was very in at the moment not to have a bra on. So I had on a t-shirt and a, and a pair of underpants, very tan, and he says to me, no, you've got to change those pants. They're too on the nose. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, I, those, you know, and it turned into some kind of a power struggle or something. And, and I, we got into a little bit of a fight and it was already a difficult scene. And I remember just taking them off and throwing them at him and storming off and thinking, what did you just do? Are you so stupid walking bare ass off this set? What is wrong with you? And I don't remember if we got another pair of underpants. I guess we did, but I mean, I, you know, it was just—it was just the culmination of like a very awkward scene and being in this hammock in a weird way and everything else. Um, but it was a fun, ultimately a fun job. And he, you know, it didn't end up. Everybody was giving him a hard time, and so we finally had a. Um, what we did was, we, Paul really wanted to be an actor, so we had a talent show where he could do a stand-up routine and get it all out, and we all had little things that we did. Vittorio Gossman read a poem and then jumped and rolled over like five guys shoulder to shoulder on the ground. I mean, it was just <laughs> insane. And, uh, but, the, you know, when you're stuck all together and these are the only people you have, this is what happens. You find ways to amuse yourself. It's quite a cast of personalities, so... To be stuck oh, yeah, on an island. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was great, though. Uh, hi. I'm a particularly big fan of uh, Who Am I This Time? And I was just wondering what you, know, what you think of the film. I assume you love it. And what it was like to work with uh, Chris Walken and John, Jonathan Demme. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, Kurt Vonnegut said that it's the best interpretation of anything that he's ever written. And, I, and that does have a... We did it very fast outside of Chicago. And... Um, it was interesting because the first day of shooting, um, Jonathan asked for some kind of a complicated shot and the, the DP just laughed at him because he was wearing a Hawaiian shirt and was this guy that nobody knew who he was, right? And that, you know, he had to do one of those moments, is there something funny? Do you want to share that with the class? And so there was this tension. And then when they saw the dailies, they came round 
But um, it, I don't think you've ever seen Chris Walken do anything like that. He's just so sweet and lovable and fun. He's always funny. But before he became ca kind of a Saturday Night Live caricature of Chris Walken, he plays this sweet character who only exists when he's on stage because he was left on the steps of the Unitarian Church and he doesn't have doesn't know whose family was or does so he has no personality and is very shy and then has the lead in every community theater production of everything so we're doing streetcar named desire and he does every cliche of stanley ripping his shirt everything he goes by he crashes and and uh, i'm the girl that's come in to um put in a computer system into the phone company and i end up playing stella and i won't tell you what happens but it was um Really fun, really, really fun to do, and, and I like it. I think it's a little gem. It's an odd little thing, but it's, he's so sweet in it. Thanks for asking about that. I don't know where people see that. I guess you can find anything, right? Who am I this time? It was done for, for TV, I think, yeah. How you doing? I read this amazing interview you did. Um, you were talking about David Bowie, and I was wondering if you might have anything else you might want to tell us. How he, you know, basically how he um, influenced your life. Well, that's pretty personal because we were together for a number of years. But he, um, I, I think he's influenced a lot of people's lives since he's passed. A lot of people have told me that he, he meant so much to them. I met him in a more stable period of his life, you know, when we were doing The Hunger. And then we were together for the Serious Moonlight Tour in a period around there. And I think he was... A very private person and a very um, just incredibly graceful. He was like, you know, Fred Astaire or something. And and uh, and and the fact that he found Iman, who who matched him in 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 his alien quality, because she's almost like someone's avatar or something. She's so beautiful, and at the same time, she's so dignified and, and also I think really was wonderful for you know in terms of him building his life I think one of the things that was funny about David was when he when he you know that he was very traditional when it came to his kids especially the youngest one the, that he had with Iman he we were talking about schools at some point uh, when she was really little and I was talking about little red and some of the other ones and he he, he, he wasn't so, you know, he, he was looking for structure and a more traditional, I couldn't believe it, you know. It's always those guys that go off, turn on you at the end and become really straight. I was like, seriously, are you kidding? Because I'd had kids in almost every school. At some, you know, started, everybody started in French Seminary, someone went to Little Red, someone up to Columbia Prep, too, and in uh, St. Anne's, you know, so I was the expert on schools and he just was rejecting any kind of progressive education. Uh, but I think she ended up going downtown. And toward the end, I thought it was really beautiful that he had this, because I saw him very, I knew that he was dying. And, and uh, he, he was just in awe of the fact that the last year of his life had been so productive. Because he went through a phase when he was fighting, you know, he had some health issues before the last one. And um, where he wasn't, writing and he and then all of a sudden everything came together and he had this amazing uh lazarus and the album and just everything that uh i think was really lovely and i was so lucky to have our paths cross again in a major way toward the end there were you surprised at the outpouring when he when he passed that there are so many people that Connect, seem to connect with him? No, I mean, I think, uh, no, I wasn't because, um, you know, first of all, he was a, around for a long time, and I think that his spirit of, I, I, I really admire artists who have a success and they don't just keep doing that over and over. And he was so experimental and he was so brave. And at the same time, you know, I think he, he was a survivor story, but he also was very joyful. I mean, he was very celebratory, and he was all about, um, you know, don't dream it, be it, the Rocky Horror Show. That's why that's been around forever. It's, it's about, you know, authenticity, and he, I think he gave permission to so many people to experiment and to embrace their feminine side or their masculine side, you know, this... Um, 
I, I never saw him as androgynous. All the people that I really, really admire are men who have made peace with their feminine and women who've made peace with their masculine. I think it's, for an artist, you can't be held back by those definitions. That's why, you know, this whole um, fluid time that we're living in, I think, is just so inspiring and so exciting for everybody, even if you're not transitioning, because it just blows out all of the definitions of what a man has to be or a woman has to be or what you have to feel or what you're allowed or marriage, you know, gay marriage means that heterosexual marriage is no more has to be defined so clearly in terms of well, whose job is what and so, you know, instead of being afraid, I think, you know, we've just gotten that many more crayons in our box and we can just go crazy outside the lines and it's an exciting, exciting time to to be alive and just see, I mean, I guess in some way it's scary because the things are falling, are being deconstructed, but what you're getting in return is so much more definitions and choices. And I think he was a leader of that in a lot of ways and, uh, and very, you know, brilliant, fucking brilliant uh, in so many ways and uh, very clever in terms of having his, you know, his, uh, having, his fingers on the pulse of new things. Um, very practical. He and you know he, he he in terms of money and stuff. He was no fool in understanding how to do that. But um, yeah, he was pretty pretty special. You have these the hunger and Rocky Horror two films that have really lasted really have a lasting impact. Would hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, would you have expected that? Were you expecting that when you made those films? They weren't really successful when they came out, were they? I mean, I don't, not, certainly not Rocky no, the Horror. the Rocky Horror Show, they didn't yeah. even know where they put it for years. It never came yeah. out. Exactly. <laughs> never even, they didn't know what to do with that one. And, it, you know, if you do a film and it doesn't cost much money, and that was like a million dollars or less, they're not going to spend money when they don't know what to do with it. I mean, how could you know how to market that film? It never had existed before. And, you know, often these people have certain um, experiences with films and they put your film into the slot and there was no slot that existed for the Rocky Horror Show, that was for sure. Still. Still. <laughs> oh, I don't know, now it's gonna be on TV, I mean, I, I don't know. Now it doesn't seem quite so um, extreme, but at the time, uh, it was amazing, and um, I, what they did was some guys at Fox just started leaking it to gay cinemas and to art houses and those late shows, and then, you know, from there it turned into some weird ass, I don't know what, you know, that just <laughs> does not stop. Um, the Hunger, I don't think, was uh, as financially successful. The Hunger definitely expanded the demographic that I, people were interested in me, but um, I don't think it, I don't know what it did. It, it was, in terms of the stylistically, it was really something that now uh, isn't so uh, unusual, but at that time was, you know, Tony Scott's first film. And uh, he brought all of his commercial awareness, and he was incredibly collaborative, and it was a, you know, it was a funny, funny experience, but, um, Great to do, yeah. Well, I was one of those people who went to Rocky Horror when it was at the Waverly and A Street Playhouse, and it was a very, it did seem out of another place in time and hard to really understand. Uh, well, it's kind of a ceremony, was. isn't it? It was a, it was a, and it was a safe haven for people who felt, uh, you know, outside of the normal way to be accepted, they could go, there was a community there, and what was really weird, when I was working with Natalie Portman, she was like 16, or I guess maybe 17, and we went, they wanted to go see the Rocky Horror Show, we were in LA, I hadn't been for years and years, I took Molly Ringwald, actually, <laughs> here, she wanted to see it, and Nureyev, that was the oddest night, Nureyev, Molly Ringwald, and myself, <laughs> went to the Rocky Horror Show, so in L.A., Thora Birch went, who made the mistake of saying she had never seen the film before, so they just completely harassed her. My daughter, who was like 15, and Natalie, who was, I guess, 17 or 18. And um, the people who were in front of the screen acting it out, for anyone who hasn't been, there's, as it's going on, people are in front, and they're in costume, and they're acting out exactly what's going on on the screen. And... Um, 
they, I, so I, they knew I was there and it was a big deal and so we, I talked to them and their parents had met doing it. <laughs> it was like a family tradition. Their children were now acting this out. That's how long it had been and that's how strange this country is. Uh, I was like, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Don't throw any toast if anyone has any. Please don't throw any toast. I must right. say, the, the New York crew was much more disciplined. The L.A. was just like being in a room with Tourette people. They were just like, everyone was screaming everything on top of each other, and it was, I don't know what was going on, but the New York was very much like a mass. It you was know, a it was very disciplined thing, very and you had to know your part, and if you came as that part, you did not mm -hmm. do the other part. That was your part, and I remember that very well. But uh, very New York, I always thought of it as a very New York thing. Just because I'm from New York, so that's maybe my own bias. But uh, no, I think I, well, I don't know actually. I don't know if anyone's ever figured out, but it definitely um, they haven't been able to come up. I know the room people have tried to start something with that the yeah. room, but that's a really bad film. The room? Do you know the room? You mean the the drama that just happened? No, 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 no. <laughs> I was like, that's why? Room. Oh, room. That's okay, room. Okay, sorry. I was this like, that's a horrible room. movie to do it like that. No, 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 no. Yeah, let's all pretend we're the kid that's <laughs> locked up. Exactly. You roll in the mattress next, you know. No, it was. It's called the room, and it's it's a kind of vanity project, and it's pretty. You know, I don't know if anyone here knows. And I thought that would maybe end up kind of being it. Um, I have a question that someone sent on social media. I just want to ask, and then I'll, I'll let you go there. But um, if you could give any advice to your younger self, what would it be? Um, I would say make your mistakes faster. I'm, I'm a big believer in making mistakes. I really encourage my kids to know that mistakes are so important and really help you figure out who you're not and what you want and what you don't want. But I feel like I could have gotten the point quicker sometimes <laughs> and done it faster. So maybe that. The other thing, when I see these reels of, you know, I just had a, got a, an, an, a I went to this thing, Cinecon, uh, in Vegas a few days ago, which is a gathering of... <laughs> it's hard to say what's it's, in It's like <laughs> Little League. Everyone gets an award. Like, you know, <laughs> most improved player, best icon, most popular, the new breakout, new star, old star. I mean, like, there's... I can't tell you how many awards they give out. Anyway, I got an award. And, and they do a film, you know, of your career, you know, and you see yourself, you just, and I thought, I really didn't understand that I was pretty. You know, I didn't get it, really, when I was then. Uh, I wish I had appreciated uh, the way that I looked. I, I, I didn't really think of myself that way. I would have used it better <laughs> if I'd known. And I didn't really know. I didn't get it, you know, but... Um, but I think maybe just embracing mistakes and moving on much quicker would have been the only thing that I would say. Did you have a mentor? Did you have someone that you could talk to when you were coming up? No. No. Um, I didn't have a press person. I didn't have a manager. I, it never even occurred to me. Um, and I had a woman who discovered me, but she died tragically very young. Uh, but she discovered Sylvester Stallone, Chris Sarandon, me, and Perry King. And she had gone to the Long Wharf and saw Chris Sarandon in a play. Actually, her name was Jane Oliver, and she's the reason that I'm in the business, because she saw Chris, and she asked him to come in and do an audition, and he needed somebody to do a scene with him, and so I did it with him. And she said, well, why don't both of you come back? And he went off to do summer stock, and she said, why don't both of you come back? And I came with him in the fall, and they sent me up, she sent me up for, she was just, an individual, and I went up for this film called Joe, which was the first non-sex um, uh, film that this company had done, non, first non-pornographic film that Canon had done. <laughs> and uh, they asked me to do an improv, and I did it, and they talked a little bit, and then they said, okay, and I called her, and she said, just leave, don't 
sign anything, don't do anything, just come back. And so from that point on, uh, she she passed away by the time I did Pretty Baby of cancer very early. But but um, I I wouldn't I don't even think I'd be in the business if it weren't for her because I never would have had the wherewithal to go to an agency or something. She really just found me and and uh, and I think because I wasn't desperate to do it, it really made it easier. I was just like, oh, well, this is fun. I can pay off my loan with this and. Oh, I got another one. That's really fun. Then I learned, went on a soap opera, and when I was on the soap opera, I, I learned how to work with cameras, and because uh, it's kind of live, but with cameras. Hi, uh, you mentioned that you didn't know you were pretty. Um, the film *Dead Man Walking*. I felt that the camera really loved you, and I'm just wondering if you can talk a bit about the character or the experience of making well, first, the film. First, let me tell you that was Roger Deakins. And um, who's a genius? I mean, he's only gotten 45 nominations and never, or something say. like that. Because um, he had to figure, it was very interesting about that film. Well, besides the fact that I decided not to wear makeup or, you know, and have a bad haircut and everything else, which is half the trick, by the way, to get an Academy Award. <laughs> the minute you uglify yourself, just look at if you either play someone really sick or disabled or you uglify yourself, that's 50% right there. You know, Charlize Theron, just go back over the people that have won my left foot, you name it, they're always like, <laughs> Rain Man, what other ones can we think of? Uglify is definitely... Uglify, and so anyway, um, but he had to figure out, we had different um, widths of, of wire to look through and to decide you know, whether you were inside when you were covering us or outside, it's a long time sitting at the, with Sean at that thing and there were a lot more scenes outside because we thought you know with other things going on because we never thought that would hold and um, I that was a uh, remarkable experience because I met Sister Helen I read I, I got the book I read about it I read it and I was in New Orleans doing uh, The Tail End of the Client and I met her for dinner. She didn't have the faintest idea which one of Thelma Louise I was. She said, she, but I came highly recommended by Amnesty International because of some of the stuff I had done and so that's why she was interested. Um, and she, I just loved her and she just said, okay, fine, you know, you take it. So with a handshake, the book was mine. And I went back and I tried to get Tim interested and he just was not interested. He was wanted to do Cradle Will Rock. Uh, you know, he had the company that had done Bob Roberts and had done very well with Bob Roberts, you know, and he just, he just was not interested. And um, so it was about a year and finally, you know, I was turning things down and there weren't good parts and finally I just had like a little mini tantrum. I remember on 7th Avenue and just said, are you going to do this or am I going to give it to somebody else or what do you want to do? It's like, ah, all right, let me read it. And then when he read it, it kind of got into his imagination. We went away to Italy and we were staying. He did like a first draft of that and a first draft of Cradle Rock and gave them to Gore Vidal, who is the godfather of my youngest child. He and Bob Altman shared our youngest child. And um, Gore read them and said, don't do either of them. No one's gonna see a movie with dead in the title, which was true. Nobody had been able, nobody, you know, don't do either of them. So that wasn't very helpful. And then, uh, I don't know, we came back and he, he just started to get more. Sister Helen by that time had already become a friend because even before we did it, she was staying at our house if she came to New York to talk or whatever. So I felt a huge, um, well, it was funny because he, I remember Tim said to me after we were already in pre-production, he said, now, you don't think this is about her, right? I think this was a conversation pretty late and what if I'd said yes? And I said, no, I think that it's, you know, I think it's a love story with this other political thing happening. And he was like, a love story, what? And, uh, but he was, of course, he's very political. And um, so there were a number of scripts and a lot of fighting, a lot of stuff, and then trying to get Sean. Um, but I, I really... That's the only movie I've ever prayed every morning to kind of just surrender because I felt it was so 
to 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 make the wrong film of that subject was you ran a risk of I mean I felt like it, it was something that needed to be talked about but um, to go off in some way could have really been bad or to not do justice to her or to glamorize. I mean, there were so many ways for it to go wrong and God bless him. He did such a great job of combining the characters, getting rid of the electrocutions and making it you know, the most humane way to kill someone and not making him innocent. Because when we were taking it around places, people said, well, you know, he's going to get out, right? Or he's innocent, right? Or they have a love story, right? And it was like none of the above. And so Harvey Weinstein turned it down. I mean, nobody wanted to do that movie the way that it was. But he it was a low budget, and, and it was very important that it be the most humane way to kill a guilty person and examine it that way. You know, do where does it come in? And I learned so much from all the religious that I met, and, and this, for me, the, the question of unconditional love, and if, I mean, you certainly can love your kids unconditionally, and religious love unconditionally like Jesus, but I don't know if it's even right for you to love your spouse unconditionally, I don't know. But um, to, for me, that was what was, I was, uh, it was about, was this love story of redemption set in the midst of the death penalty, but really about this pe these people, and Sean was the only person I could think of who was simultaneously scary and sympathetic. <laughs> you know, you could believe he would kill someone, and you could believe that you'd want to go to bed with him. You know, so how do you find that in people? It's really, really tough. And he was just a joy to, to work with. He was, because it was so intense for the two of us to have be you know so connected sometimes he'd be strapped in and I'd help him I'd stay there with him the whole time and help him smoke a cigarette or I mean it was looking back crazy because uh, we did all of those scenes together uh, in New York across the street from our house and um, that's when Tim said oh I get it now it is a love story but um so that was nice to have, to be able to chart it so that there weren't any repetitions and so you could really understand in order. And also, I'd, I don't think I've ever had a film where um, you were really counting down the days till your co-star was killed, <laughs> which was very strange. Yeah. We have time for one more question back there. You're very inspiring in many ways, but one of them is that you're very political as well. From I was waiting for this question. I, know, I was waiting too. <laughs> um, first of all, where do you get your energy and what kinds of things are you most passionate about right now? I, like some of you, came of age in the late 60s, the early 70s, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but also a time when you could turn on the TV and actually see what was going on you saw the South being desegregated, you saw what was going on in Vietnam, and of course they never made that mistake again. Corporate media has changed the way we get our information. And, but at that time, being in college in D.C. and watching D.C. burn and having presidents being assassinated and everything, um, in a way, so much less informed in other ways than kids, the millennials that are online all the time, uh, and, and got information, for instance, with Bernie Sanders way before anybody else did because it wasn't being covered. Um, but it was just a natural, it just seemed perfectly natural to be arrested and to be partake in those things. And then it, God bless you, never really stopped for me. And, um, but I didn't connect public part, you know, making speeches or anything. I'm still not even comfortable with that. But, um, I remember one of the first things I did pub as an actor connected to media was um, ERA and Marlo Thomas. We were at the big library and she said, you have to go out and say something. And I was like, well, I, I don't have anything to say. And she said, well, it doesn't matter what you say. This is how it gets on the news. You have to just go out there. And I remember going out and just seeing like 30 microphones and I, you know, I, I, I kind of remember what I said, but it wasn't particularly brilliant. But I realized very early on that um, especially my specialty became people that didn't have a voice, issues that nobody was covering, 
which is why recently I went to Greece. You know, the dialogue, uh, the conversation about the refugees had, was so hateful and so fear-based. And I was like, who are these people? Why are they there? Where are they trying to get to? What are their jobs? You know, people deserve to be humanized, not reduced to concepts. And if I go, I can maybe get in interviews with people and get that put on somewhere where people will at least have an opportunity to hear who these people are because nobody's talking to them. This was right before uh, Christmas, around that period where Trump was just crazy about the refugees. But early on, I, I realized that, you know, I, when I went to Nicaragua and um, I guess it was 83, when we, we hadn't said we were, uh, we hadn't admitted that we were blowing things up over there, but I went with a delegation of women, not anybody in the business, but just over there again to bring baby food and milk and to find out what was happening when we destabilized a government. And I learned that um, the, the value of being able to um, place pictures and have you know, whether it was a school strike or whether or not it was a homeless situation, all people who really just didn't have anybody to um, explain their plight, that it was a way of using my celebrity instead of feeling like I was being used by it. And there is a lot of, uh, you know, you, I mean, I remember somebody when we were trying to get the Haitians out of Guantanamo and I was on Phil Donahue and with some other people and, and uh, you know, somebody said, well, why should we listen to, you know, you have illegitimate children and why should we listen to anything you have to say? And, and I said, I, you absolutely should, I, you shouldn't any more than you should care who I sleep with or where, what's happening with my children. I mean, you're right. Why do, why, why would that count? But unfortunately it does. So if you're going to be interested in that other stuff, then I'm going to at least be able to tell you that there are these people that are HIV positive and how hypocritical it is not to let them in when they have places to go. You know what I mean? It's just like there's bad branding for so many of these situations. And if you can in some way draw attention to it, and when that didn't work and getting arrested didn't work, when I went on the um, Academy Awards and Clinton had said he would get them out, and now they were swallowing Drano and were trying to kill themselves and were lying in a field and were on a hunger strike, um, I really tossed and turned about whether or not to say something at the Academy Awards, but I learned that always the things that I've regretted the most are the things that I have not done or said. Mm -hmm. You can always apologize, <laughs> you know, but when you go home and you think, ah, oh, why didn't I have the courage to, you know, there I was, and there have been some times when that's happened, and I thought this is not, we fought about what exactly we would say, how long it would be, we didn't tell anybody, we were trying to protect other people, and damned if they didn't get out like two days later, because embarrassment is one of the strongest weapons you have in these situations, and, um, and they, that's a big audience, the Academy Awards. But we were banned for a, a num until I got nominated. We, that, ouch. <laughs> but um, th there was a lot of bad mail. It was like the lead up to the war. You know, asking questions in that situation was really painful. That's one of the reasons I love Bernie Sanders so much is that when he stood on the floor and said what he said in, the, in that atmosphere of such, um, fear and paranoia and where you were labeled a bin, uh, bin, uh, uh, Osama bin Laden lover every time my name came up and my kids, I was, my life was threatened and all these different things were coming down, you know, and, and to see somebody say what he said at that time in those circumstances, just, I just remember being so moved. Well... Don't forget to vote tomorrow. <laughs> vote yeah, tomorrow vote. and see this film Friday. Oh, yeah, go back up. and see it. Yes. Go, please go back. and this I feel like I know taste. you. I want you to see it now. It's only a taste, and uh, we want to thank uh, Susan for coming. And uh, our chaplain gal is Monday with Morgan Freeman, and we're very happy that Susan is a past recipient of our And I just want to say my my sincere congratulations to Lincoln Center because when that happened was when everything was being canceled that I was supposed to do and they went through with that award show at a time when I was being blacklisted basically and ostracized and 
you know, the United Way canceled an event that I had with these little girls in Florida. Like, just across the board, that's when the Baseball Hall of Fame wouldn't let us in, and all kinds of weird stuff was coming down. And Lincoln Center stood by me at that particular time and went through with it. So that shows, you know, I was so appreciative of that at that time. Thank you. Thank you all. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.